Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each time we meet, we run down the IT news of the week with a variable degree of snarkiness. I'm your host, Stephen Foskett, and joining me today, filling in for Tom Hollingsworth, is someone you may have seen at a networking field day event or on the on-premise IT podcast, my co-host, Steve Palooka. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I'm pleased to be here, especially on this October Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And since it's National Do Something Nice Day as well, how about you do something nice and educate your family on cybersecurity? Now let's take a look at the uh, news of the week. The first half 2022 DDoS threat report has been released by NetScout Arbor, but something unusual has made the headlines. There's been a slight decrease in the number of attacks. Though this uh, reduction is a good thing, a large increase in the max bandwidth is still expected due largely because of the war in Ukraine. Steve, uh, what are your thoughts about this? What should we make of this decrease? Well, I think uh, one of the things we've gotten used to over the over the last decade or so is that DDoS is here to stay as a as a major threat for all companies on who have any kind of internet presence at all or any kind of internet connection. Um, and while it's exciting for the very first time to see a decrease in the number of attacks uh, reported in the NetScout Arbor report, it, we do have to have to caveat that that it is only a two percent decrease. Um, but it's possible that we're reaching the the maturity level of threat in in DDoS. Uh, and the other interesting thing that they added to the report that you alluded to is that they, they created a new section on global threats and not only the war in Ukraine, but other conflicts and political situations out the world are now being called out independently on the number of DDoS attacks that are associated with them. So I think um, this allows us as uh, protectors of our networks to see uh, how we are going to respond to the, to the things that are around us. Uh, we do still see in the report the increase of complexity in, with the mixing of vectors in the, in the attack. And it is a constant reminder of these biannual reports that companies of all size need to have these contingency plans. You know, what are you going to do on that day when somebody who doesn't like you decides that you are going to be the DDoS target? So next story is about the self-driving hardware leader, Mobileye. Uh, Intel acquired them in 2017 for $15 billion, and they've been quietly growing that into a major business unit. But now with Pat Gelsinger back at the helm, it seems like this may not be at the center of what Intel is all about. And so they're filing for an IPO to spin this out. They're expecting to raise $30 billion in the process. So what do you think Intel is going to do with all that money? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Mobileye was a definitely a pre-Gelsinger move for Intel, and frankly, it made a lot of money or a lot of sense at the time. This is a company that is uh, important in the self-driving hardware and software space. Uh, they were used actually by Tesla until Tesla showed them the door and uh, decided to move everything in-house uh, right before that acquisition, actually. Uh, but since then, Mobileye has grown to become a leader in uh, self-driving hardware and software, and you'll find their uh, stuff inside a BMW, Volkswagen, Nissan, and other uh, car companies as well. Um, effectively, this is uh, the foot in the door in the self-driving vehicle world for Intel. 
But that being said, uh, Gelsinger is much more focused on growing the core business of Intel and reestablishing it as a uh, mobile uh, client data center and cloud chip leader and um, bringing back manufacturing as well. So this IPO appears to be a way to unlock the value that um, the uh, growing Mobileye has uh, delivered to Intel by going IPO at a substantial multiple, uh, not only of uh, annual revenues, but of course, of what Intel paid for it. So effectively, this is more of a financial engineering move than anything. I don't think Intel's going to completely spin the uh, Mobileye out. But I do think that this shows that it's not really a core part of what Intel is all about in the future. Researchers at Carnegie Mellon University have proposed a protocol to manage vulnerability disclosure when multiple companies are affected by a critical vulnerability. This would allow all affected parties to coordinate the public disclosure after remediations are ready. And um, what do you think of this proposal and do you think it's going to work? Oh, I think this has been an interesting move forward here in the complex nature of, of vulnerabilities that have been developing over the past 20 years. Um, we've noticed, uh, especially highlighted, uh, the dependencies of software vendors and tools and libraries across things. So last year, at the end of last year, we saw the log for shell vulnerability, which basically blew up because of a library that was incorporated in lots and lots of different vendors. And when it was released as a vulnerability, everybody had to scramble to see how they were going to patch their, their tools. So this is a, an effort by someone at uh, a major university, Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, who's routinely finding vulnerabilities and disclosing them to the people who wrote the code. They're recognizing this problem of coordination between vulnerability disclosure people, the people who actually wrote the software and the people that use modules within software. And they're creating this framework to make it easier for everybody to be on the same page and for people to be protected when things are made public in the, and I think this is going to be a great help to the bug bounty programs of the world uh, in making sure that cybersecurity um, software is protected in a, in a helpful way. So moving on, uh, Linus Torvalds just announced the next major release of the Linux kernel. We're coming up to version six already. This brings in a lot of new features and, and a recognition of the advancement that's coming in recent years. So what are you excited about and what's new in Linux 6? Yeah, first of all, I think that it's important to point out that as Linus would be the first to, to say, uh, the major version uh, increment of the kernel doesn't actually tell us much of anything. It's uh, This might have been 5 dot something, but instead it gets to be 6.0. Uh, I think that really what we're looking for here is 6.1. Essentially, Linus is turning his attention to some major updates to the kernel in the next revision, uh, the unstable version. And that includes incorporating the Rust memory safe uh, programming language into the kernel for the first time. That's going to be huge. And actually, I think will be a major, major uh, difference in Linux. So I think version 7, uh, maybe, if that ends up being the one with Rust, or version 6.something uh, that includes a, a more and more Rust is going to be a, a big impact, especially from a uh, stability and security perspective. That being said, there's actually some pretty cool stuff that's been added to the kernel recently, according, uh, in, including uh, more support for a variety of CPU architectures, everything from 
uh, risk five, which is incredibly important, to uh, the Lung Sun Lung Arch, which is incredibly not important. Uh, also support for things like the Nintendo 64 and the Atari Falcon, no kidding. And of course, um, increasing ARM support and support for Apple Silicon. Now, all of that stuff is coming into uh, version five kernels and is pretty much sort of here in version six. But I think that in the next few kernels, we're going to see more and more support for architectures like that. Probably more important, though, is that uh, version six includes support for some major new data center chips. We've talked here about Sapphire Rapids. Uh, which is Intel's name for their fourth generation Xeon server chips, which are coming real soon now. Uh, we've also got uh, Intel's Raptor Lake and Meteor Lake client chips. Uh, importantly, AMD's RDNA 3 GPUs and Threadripper and Epic CPUs are coming in here as well in version 6. And all of these are going to be having a huge impact on the data center. I'm also looking for more and more CXL support, which has been added recently in the Linux kernel. And of course, uh, more support for things like ARM and you know uh, everything else. But essentially, we shouldn't get too excited about kernel 6 because it's just another number. Uh, instead, what we should do is we should reflect on the fact that increasingly, Linux is supporting uh, pretty much every major hardware platform out there and is really the proving ground for new uh, hardware like you know, Sapphire, like Arc, like, uh, you know, RDNA 3 and all this. And, and I think that that's going to be great to see moving forward. Google has announced that they're going to spin out a wireless type beam service provider, Alleria, as an independent company. At the same time, they have a major contract with the U United States Department of Defense. Uh, this newer method for satellite communications may be reaching the practical usage threshold. Uh, Steve, tell me more about this. I think this is interesting on a couple of different levels. First, the, the technology itself will make it possible to have high quality Wi-Fi internet connections in moving airplanes and ships. You know, currently the bandwidth you can actually receive in those types of targets is pretty limited and by the current technologies. But this type beam service is a is another order of magnitude better the fact that the department of defense is giving them the major contract to get this off the ground means that this is a proven technology i mean the the dod does not spend this level of money on things that are still experimental they're pretty much uh you have to prove it before we work i think um the other interesting aspect of this is that they are spinning it out instead of keeping it in-house like Google Fiber. So there's a lot of speculation as to why that is. I'm not sure myself. I, I imagine it has something to do with the regulations and contracting that they don't want to get into as a, as a company. But it's interesting that they're not keeping this as part of their push to get better internet connectivity everywhere. It's also interesting that a number of the reports show that the gear that's required for this is fairly pricey, you know, into the many thousands of dollars for it to work. So this will only be appearing, I think, originally on major airlines and cruise ship lines and, and super rich yachts. You know, this is not going to be something that you could buy for your boat um, unless you have a lot of money to burn. So I expect it'll be a fairly limited commercial rollout initially. But the fact that we can do high-speed internet access on fast-moving uh, vehicles in both the air and the water is a, is a pretty exciting move forward. 
So I've also seen in the news that commentators are surprised that uh, Red Hat has remained so independent since the IBM takeover of the company in 2019. But here come the first uh, trickles that this might be changing for them. At least uh, Red Hat's storage portfolio now seems to be transferred uh, into the spectrum line of under GM Dennis Kennelly, and that IBM is going to be replacing Red Hat uh, as the sponsor of the Ceph Foundation. So what does this say about IBM Red Hat and the storage market, you think? Yeah, well, one thing I think that it says is uh, storage is kind of hard uh, to do, and IBM is actually pretty good at storage. They have, uh, let's see, invented the enterprise storage market um, many decades ago and uh, continue to be a pretty good at, <laughs> at this whole storage question. The whole IBM Spectrum brand has a lot of really impressive uh, hardware, software talent, and uh, frankly, it makes sense to move the OpenShift Data Foundation, uh, which is Red Hat's sort of signature uh, enterprise uh, storage offering for OpenShift underneath the IBM uh, storage GM, uh, simply because it gives them access to talent that they wouldn't have otherwise had, and if, access to uh, hardware and software uh, as well that they might not have otherwise had. I think that the thing that's a little confusing here is Ceph. Now, uh, those of you who are aware, Ceph is a very, very important uh, distributed storage platform, and it's become uh, really a, a key part of uh, many cloud-native applications. Ceph is not becoming a Spectrum product by any means. Ceph is going to remain an open source uh, software. It's just that IBM, uh, when they're moving all these uh, all the storage-related staff over from Red Hat into the IBM world, are also going to be replacing Red Hat as sort of the maintainers and champions of Ceph within the uh, Ceph Foundation. I think, again, this is probably good news overall because it signals that Ceph is going to have long-term development support from a major player in the storage industry. And of course, it signals very strongly that IBM does not want to bring Ceph in-house and make it some kind of a proprietary product or something. They want to support it as an open source project. In fact, you could look at this and say that maybe this has some good news overall for Red Hat, since uh, many of the key Red Hat open, uh, open source components, uh, like OpenShift and OpenStack and, and so on, are uh, really in uh, need of long-term support. And IBM, I think, is signaling that they're on board with that, and they will continue to do that sort of thing. Steve, new, uh, two new CVEs were encountered uh, this week that could allow attackers to combine in remote code execution for multiple versions of the Microsoft Exchange server run on-premises. There's no patch yet, and Microsoft has posted some mitigations that will make it harder for the vulnerabilities to be exploited, but how concerned should we be about this? I think this is interesting on a couple of different levels. And uh, the first that we're exposing uh, vulnerabilities uh, in the CVEs officially before a patch is available. This is, this is not typical, a little unusual. They usually wait for public disclosure until there is a, a patch available. So something has gone mildly wrong with the disclosure process here that this has happened. The, there are two vulnerabilities that have to be used together in order to get the remote code execution. So, uh, and you do require to have a valid login uh, for the system in, uh, in order to start this process too. Uh, and so the, the, the 
mitigations that are available, you know, do lock it down pretty good. Although there, there has already been a security researcher, Jang, uh, on Twitter, who's posted an addition that should be done if you've applied the, if you've applied the mitigations to, to make it even more robust. But at the end of the day, the, the CVEs are still there. They're just mitigated. So you know, be watching for that patch. This is a serious enough one that it'll, it may even come out without waiting for patch Tuesday, uh, whenever they get it working and operational. Uh, so even with these mitigations, it's still possible for the attacker to use these. So you do have to be things. So I think the first um, thing to celebrate here is if you're one of the people who thankfully said, I'm pushing my email to the cloud, you're not affected by this. This is only gonna be to those people that are hanging on with both hands and their cold dead fingers to running Microsoft Exchange on site. So largely people that have a financial services market or a lot of governments that have this really, really strong desire to not let their data out of their cold fingers keeping things on site. But I think these are exactly the kind of things that should give those folks, you know, pause on, you know, do you really want to keep this type of basic application? I mean, the email is the same as the phones these days. It's just something you're communicating with and it's a basic service. You know, why do you want to run the gory details of this uh, in your in-house? You know, maybe this is the, the final knock on the door that you should just give it up and turn it over to the, to the people who do this for a living. Moving on to take a closer look, you know, there were some interesting things happening in the AMD's enterprise chip business. Since uh, 2014, uh, Forrest Narod has been building up this CPU vendor powerhouse. Um, and he has been made a major player in, in the CPU industry. He's broadened into network adapters with Xilinx and Pensando. He's taking um, traction in the, in the machine learning market as a next generation platform. So Narod sat down for an in-depth interview about what he's doing and the competition, especially with Intel, what's coming up with CXL, what's going on with Xilinx and Pensando and what the future holds for the company. So this is something that's been uh, top of mind at Gestalt IT for a long time. And I know you're seriously interested in this business. So what do you, what do you think's going on here, Stephen? Yeah, it was a really interesting interview. And um, Timothy Prickett Morgan from The Next Platform gets a lot of credit for bringing a lot of insight himself into the uh, whole proceeding. That being said, boy, uh, this is worth reading. It's worth spending some time on because it's hard to argue that AMD is not a key uh, competitor in basically every space that we cover here at Gestalt IT, whether it's uh, obvious things like uh, compute and cloud, or maybe less obvious things like networking and security and storage. So let's talk about uh, what we see in this interview. Uh, first off, uh, one of the things that I'm reading through here is that uh, AMD kind of lucked out because Intel was so late with their Ice Lake and Sapphire Rapids parts. Essentially, AMD, uh, in, in they admit here, was constrained in terms of manufacturing. So no matter how many chips they wanted to make for the enterprise market and the cloud market, they really couldn't make all that the market would absorb. And that basically let Intel maintain a healthy uh, lead in those markets. 
that being said, uh, of course, AMD has been uh, actively trying to address that drought of uh, manufacturing capacity. And uh, if they do, when they do, we'll be in a very good position to compete with Intel. Of course, Sapphire Rapids has slipped and slipped, and that has uh, provided an opening here. As you read here, uh, the decision was made by Narad and the AMD team to delay their next generation Genoa um, uh, processor in order to include some support for CXL, which is a technology we've talked about quite a lot on the rundown, as well as on a recent checksum uh, editorial that I recorded. That ended up uh, rather than hurting AMD, which is what they thought it would do because Sapphire Rapids would be on the market and Genoa would be late. Instead, um, it ends up helping AMD because frankly, uh, Sapphire Rapids end up slip, slipping further and uh, AMD is going to deliver their support before Intel. What that means is that AMD is well positioned in the next generation space and has a seat at the table when talking about CXL. As you will see uh, pretty soon here when we're uh, hosting the CXL forum at OCP Summit in a couple of weeks. What that means overall is that AMD on the CPU side is really neck and neck with Intel and is at this point only constrained by uh, manufacturing and architecture decisions that they're making. Now let's talk a little bit about those architecture decisions. Uh, AMD was early to the tile-based uh, chip uh, trend that we're seeing now, but Narad is a little bit more skeptical of UCIE, which is the uh, generic uh, standardized tile uh, interface for uh, chips that would allow different uh, components from different vendors to be combined on the same chips. He seems to be taking a much more pragmatic approach and talking about the technical needs of each individual block when putting together chips, whether it's uh, 3D memory or a combination of CERDAS or I.O. chips or accelerators on the same, um, on the same uh, processor module. And uh, Intel, on the other hand, seems to be much more committed to the open uh, UCIE standard. We'll see how that pays off for both companies. But I think that uh, you know, if Narad is correct, we could end up with another uh, generation of technical advancement from AMD using more proprietary chiplet interconnects instead of uh, relying on the standards like Intel. Now, maybe more important is the discussion of DPUs and network switches and so on that comes in here. Everybody knows, uh, hopefully, that AMD bought Xilinx, which was a leader in FPGAs and the big competitor to Intel in the FPGA market. And I think that a lot of people took a look at that and said, oh, well, AMD's doing a me too. They're just trying to keep up with Intel uh, in FPGAs. But just like Intel uh, got a lot more than FPGA technology, uh, AMD got a lot more uh, with Xilinx. In fact, Xilinx was one of the pioneers in DPUs as well as in digital signal processing and software. And I think a lot of people really didn't give uh, Xilinx much credit for that, though they deserve a lot more. Then AMD went out and bought Pensando, which was clearly the leader in the DPU space. Uh, the Pensado uh, P4-based uh, network processor is uh, sort of the gold standard in DPUs. And of course, Pensando had an amazing, amazing team uh, behind that, especially on the software side. Well, all of that is inside AMD now, which puts AMD in a very good position against companies like Broadcom, NVIDIA, Intel, and the DPU space as well. 
one of the things as well that's kind of amusing is uh, that uh, Prickett Morgan is trying to poke uh, Narad to talk about uh, AMD in the uh, chip uh, switching chip space. And uh, Steve, I know that you know a lot about uh, networking and security. Uh, maybe you can weigh in on that aspect of this whole conversation. Yeah, I found it very interesting that that he's making this wink and a nod towards the the networking side of the world. I mean, obviously, you know, DPUs a big part of what they are is is moving packets uh, efficiently on the on the chip, and that is, of course, at the core of what networking chips are going to do. But it is still a bit of a a move to go from uh, to move from an FPGA to a full ASIC model and full line rate on these things. So it's I think it's it's a move that's going to be, you know, a little bit of work for them, but but it's interesting that it's on their radar and it's something they're going to do. And I think they do have the people there that's going to be able to make that transition happen. It'll be interesting to see, you know, if they're able to do, deploy an, an FPGA based switching trip first and and get to a full um, large large scale uh, ASIC in that or or not. I mean, it's it's obviously a big difference in bandwidth when you're dealing with full scale switching with um you know anywhere from 48 or whatever ports to, from you know from the server side that you're dealing with at this point in the dpu stage but i, I think they've got a good shot at moving in here and taking a look i think overall at the takeaway message from this interview which again i do encourage you to read um I think that it seems like uh, Forrest Narada is going to be taking a much more practical and pragmatic approach, whereas Intel is taking a much more, um, maybe forward-looking isn't the right way to say it, but uh, optimistic, uh, collaborative, standards-based approach to the future of the data center. In other words, uh, Intel seems to be betting big on manufacturing with partners, on building chiplet-based processors with partners on encouraging UCIE and especially CXL-based systems and disaggregated systems with partners, whereas AMD seems to be focused much more on what works today, what works in this generation, what works in the next generation, how can we deliver things that provide the best value on sort of a component-by-component component or system-by-system system basis to customers today, and keeping their options open on some of these open standards and partnerships in the future. That's not to say that uh, AMD is a poor partner, far from it. Uh, AMD is everywhere when it comes to uh, data center, cloud, uh, to these stacks and disaggregated systems, but uh, they're not uh, engineering their systems around standards for the purposes of being standards-based. They're engineering their systems around the best way to get the most value out of that silicon today and tomorrow, rather than trying to build, um, I guess, a... Uh, a new open ecosystem of disaggregated systems. We'll see how that works uh, and how that plays out, but effectively uh, AMD has been helped by so many uh, self-owns and, and, and self-goals from the Intel team uh, being late to the market with things like uh, their data center uh, CPUs and being a little bit slow to responding with next generation FPGAs that it really does open the door to AMD. But of course, throughout it all, there's one differentiator between the two companies that could end up being the key differentiator, and that is manufacturing. Uh, Pat Gelsinger is doubling down, tripling down. Uh, I don't know what the word for 10x down is, but he's, he's making that bet 
on uh, packaging, both in terms of chip manufacturing as well as in terms of chip packaging. And what that means is that Intel is really saying that we're going to be the manufacturer of next generation chips, whether it's from Intel or not from Intel. AMD, on the other hand, is a customer. They need to pay companies like TSMC or, uh, dare I say, Intel to manufacture their products for them. And then that also dictates their roadmap, their chip availability, and their dominance of the entire industry. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over time, because fundamentally, we could end up in a situation where AMD has perhaps the most promising uh, products, but is unable to deliver them in the volumes that Intel can simply because Intel owns the manufacturing side. Yeah, I, I think you've hit a couple of important points there. Um, you know, being a, a an active member in IEEE on, on two standards committee, I'm a big believer in standards. And I do think that standards as Intel is pursuing them are going to be a, an important part of the long term um, expansion of growth and capabilities in the chip market. because. One person, one company cannot do it all. And it's these standards that are going to make the inter interconnection of these chiplets and functions, you know, give us the next huge breakthroughs. Um, but you also point out um, the, the difference in size and scope of these two companies. Intel has the ability to think long-term and has the resources because they're soup to nuts. Uh, to be able to make that kind of bet and investment where AMD does need to be closer to the customer needs today and in the near term in order to in order to be successful. And one of the things I think AMD has been very good at is goosing Intel to, to maintain that connection with the customer as a result. Um, and Pat Gelsinger has had a lot to deal with in, in terms of that manufacturing too. They've had a lot of problems in rolling down the, the size of the nanometer technology over the last five years. And, and Pat's the real engineer CEO that can work directly with that uh, company side manufacturing and make those advancements happen, make them real, give them the resources they need and understand what they need and what they don't need and have the right kind of arguments between the CEO and the engineering team to make those things a reality. Well, thanks a lot for joining us uh, this week for the rundown, Steve, and I look forward to seeing you at a future field day event. Now let's take a look at some of the things that are coming up on the calendar in the next few weeks here at Gestalt IT. So this week, uh, HashiConf Global is going on, but of course today and tomorrow, uh, October 5th and 6th, is Mobility Field Day 8. Go to techfieldday.com to learn more about that. Next week is Google Cloud Next, and then the following week, we've got uh, Oracle Cloud World, as well as the OCP Summit, the Open Compute Summit. We've also got Tech Field Day 26 on uh, uh, October 19th through 21st, and Tech Field Day is actually going to be joining the OCP Summit for an all-day CXL forum event. So go to techfieldday.com, and you can learn more about CXL technology on Thursday, October 20th. Thank you for joining us for the Gestalt IT Rundown today. The Rundown is available as a podcast as well as on YouTube every Wednesday. We also post videos on Twitter and LinkedIn and the Gestalt IT webpage. We'll be back every Wednesday to talk about all the IT news from the week that was and look forward to the next week. Until then, for myself, uh, for our usual co-host, Tom Hollingsworth, and for Steve Paluka, 
and everyone here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours an open source day.